This episode is brought to you in part by Barton Kane, revolutionizing gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to us. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day and listen to Double Read Dish. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World, no spaces, for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. That's www.bartonkane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de moor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon bocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle bocal for you. For all your double read accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello, Galit. How are you? I'm great. How was your Thanksgiving? It was very relaxing. It was, we just stayed as our housing pod, but ate an obscene amount of delicious goodies and napped proportionately to the snacking and the eating. And what what more can you ask in a Thanksgiving, really? How was yours? Yeah. It was great. We uh, hung out with the dogs and Becky made so much food and she continued making food pumpkin pie filling yesterday because I was too tired and full to have it on Thanksgiving. And you and I were actually chatting while she was doing that. And I was like, yeah, she's making pumpkin pie. And she's like, just the filling. I was like, yeah, just the filling. I don't like crust. And you're like, you are such a brat. <laughs> said, you're a pain in the butt. <laughs> I don't like crust. Saint Becky. <laughs> it's true. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm very lucky. Well, we are coming up on episode 100 and in fact this episode is our 4th year anniversary. Oh man, I can't believe it. Can you Honestly, what a beautiful ride this has been. I'm acting like it's over. It's not over. (laughs) It's not over. But we have, um, let's see, that's a lot of dish topics. (laughs) And we were running out of ideas. (laughs) What do you want to talk about? Nothing? Nothing. What do you want to talk about? We've done that before. Oh, I think we did that last time. (laughs) So we asked what our listeners wanted to hear us dish about. And we got some great ideas that we'll start sifting through. Thank you all (laughs) for providing us with things to talk about. But one of our listeners had kind of a specific um, how come some people's cheeks puff out and others don't. And Mm -hmm. we thought about maybe uh, adapting that into we all have something that we do that other people don't on our instrument, just unique tips or habits or rituals or whatever. But to answer, I mean, the listener's question about puffing out cheeks, I was actually thinking about this. And I don't know that people really like puff out their cheeks as much as like the anatomy of some people's faces, especially on the oboe. It looks like it. Yeah, the cushioning effect of the the muscles around the lips, it does look like it. And it looks sometimes like there's air in there. And then you realize it's like musculature and just... It's just more face. Yeah, just face. Because, yeah, puffing your cheeks over a long period of time, that's what Dizzy Gillespie looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who I was 
talking to? I think it might have been John Mack way back in the day when I took a semester of lessons with him. But he was always talking about how he had to increase his shirt size because he needed more neck space the older he got because his neck would puff out so much. I've seen that. I've been in orchestra before and looked at the conductor and seen the oboist's neck expand in width for sure. It's so attractive. Maybe it's a back pressure thing. I don't know. Probably. (laughs) But that did remind me kind of where I got the idea to expand the dish is that I don't puff my cheeks, but me, and I've noticed it with two other bassoonists that I don't know if they would want me to say their name, so I'll just say that they exist. (laughs) I get on my right side a bubble. Oh, maybe it's your resonance bubble. Maybe. It's your superpower. Because it makes me a little self-conscious because on that side, it can look like I'm puffing. And if I concentrate really hard, it doesn't happen. But if I'm getting into something, I'll, I'll notice it does like when I'm watching video of myself. And it doesn't happen on the other side. And it's not a complete releasing of the musculature like I would associate with puffing one's mm-hmm. cheeks. But I get a bubble. And I've noticed two other people get a bubble on one side when playing the bassoon. It's probably just air direction. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it is something that happens to me that I noticed is not common across all bassoon players. Maybe only the most (laughs) special, wonderful, get the bubble. (laughs) What's something you do that other oboists don't do? Something I do in my cane selection that I know not everybody does is I measure the flatness of the cane and the diameter of the cane before I split and I split with a razor blade so that I get that flattest straightest part for sure and then I see if the rest of the tube is going to work I know a lot of people just split cane they don't measure they just split it because they say that the um the diameter like the cane once it's not in a tube shape it'll change anyway so Mm. it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. but I just can't bring myself to do that. I want the control of knowing that I have done everything I could to get that straight flat piece of cane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, another thing I do that I've only done for about the past like two years is, you know how uh, collaborative pianists will often have like all of their scores photocopied in like laminate clear pages in a three ring Mm -hmm. binder. I have started doing that with all of my pieces all the time. Do you want to take it to a beautiful mind level? You can keep them in the plastic and then take like a washable marker and like you can mark on top of the plastic. <laughs> like dry erase on the yeah. thing. It is like a glimpse into my neuroses, this dish topic. <laughs> I don't know. For an oboist, I feel like I don't have like as many as I could. I agree. But they're they're there. Well, our listeners certainly have some. Oh, tell me about it. John says one of his is tossing his instrument to get it settled in his hands better or more naturally. And I assume this was an oboist, but this is a bassoonist. And I don't know if I can condone tossing the bassoon it must just be a jiggle or something i'm sure it's not like when dads throw their three-year-olds in the air and they're like higher (laughs) higher (laughs) yeah i'm thinking it's not like a literal throw (laughs) can you imagine like being in rehearsal and the bassoon is just like but that's just their like routine. That's just what they do. So it happens. Sorry, it helps me play better. <laughs> Addie says exercising her wrists because she doesn't want to get injured. And yes, please. One of my favorite yoga moves is the wrist stretches. Like my right wrist pops all the time and it's probably bad. It's only the right one, but it when I'm practicing a lot, it pops all the time and it is so satisfying. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking this is one of the habits we all probably should have. Oh, well, we should take care of our bodies. What? It's easier to just keep working and grind. Decay in your chair slowly over time. Michelle says... 
And I'm interested in your take on this, if this is typical or as atypical as she thinks. Carefully taking apart my oboe and swabbing the three parts separately to ensure it's very dry. I have heard of that. I don't do that, but I am pretty neurotic about not pulling the swab one all the way through and two, like only pulling as much as I need through the thinnest part of the bore at the top of the top joint, because I don't even know if it's a real thing or like a myth or an urban legend, but that if you swab too hard in the top joint, it can alter the bore and shorten the life of the instrument because of the friction. So I am a personally, I am a very gentle yet thorough swabber. Oh, well, thank you all for sharing your peculiarities with us and allowing us to uh, comment on them on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate you. And for four years, for wonderful years. Four wonderful years. Thank you for letting us cackle into your ear holes. Happy anniversary, Colleen. Happy anniversary, Jackie. (laughs) Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are so excited to speak to Ted Saluri, Principal Bassoon of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We always like to start by asking how you discovered the bassoon and how your love for the bassoon began. I wish I could say that I discovered it, but it was absolutely forced upon me. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, you know, long story short, uh, I was born in Florida, but we lived for a while in New York City. And uh, that was when I was in elementary school. And I was obsessed with everything Broadway and theater and whatever, dance, all that stuff. Um, and I kind of always envisioned that that's what I would do. Well, when we went, in, when I was going into middle school, we moved back down to Florida. And that just wasn't a thing in middle school in Florida. So I had to sort of pick between band, chorus, and shop. Um, Shop was not an option. Um, (laughs) Chorus, though I really liked to sing, and actually that's kind of where I I saw my, my path forward. I didn't think I would enjoy singing with other people. I had never had that experience of singing with a group, and it just didn't sound appealing to me. So I chose band. And uh, in the instrument petting zoo, if you will, on day one to determine what you were going to play, I ended up picking the clarinet. Um, And I took to it very quickly. I really liked it. um, And I enjoyed it a lot. And I showed up for eighth grade, first day, I was going to be first chair in the band that year. And I was showed up with my little clarinet case. And I was just ecstatic. And I walked in and the band director handed me this giant case, and the strange looking reed and a Rubank method book and said, all right, well, you're going to be playing bassoon from now on. And for the next two weeks, I would like for you to, during band practice, sit in the instrument storage room and figure out how to play the bassoon. (laughs) So literally for two weeks, I sat in the instrument storage room with my little fingering chart and my Rubank, you know, intermediate method book or whatever. And uh, I learned how to play F major, C major, G major, D major, that's about B flat major. That's about as far as I needed to know in middle school. Um, and uh, I just started playing the bassoon. And I, of course, was the only bassoon. And I 
didn't like that at first. Um, I learned how to manage and and make fun out of, you know, make fun with that, not out of it <laughs> or of it. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was resistant at first, I'll say. I, I didn't have a real teacher uh, and I just kind of self-taught myself a little bit at the beginning. I was still very much attached to the clarinet. I would play it in marching band season and things like that. Um, but I saw my first live orchestra concert in 10th grade and that was it. That's, that was all I needed. I, I saw that program and I knew right then and there that I wanted to be an orchestral bassoonist. Um, and that's where sort of the, the passion for the instrument came from. I didn't really have the passion, I would say at that point, it was just to kill time between marching band <laughs> seasons. Um, but eventually I became drum major and I eliminated the clarinet altogether and was solely focused on the bassoon. And um, that's just sort of what led me into the field of, you know, going into college and grad school with that focus of music performance. I am shocked that two weeks of forced isolation in middle school didn't foster an immediate love for the bassoon. I know, right? A stinky instrument storage room where you're just Away not sure anything. Away from all your been... friends. Like, what? Yeah, right. Exactly. But uh, huh. you know, it 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 worked out, and and I I love it now. I and you know all of the vocal things that I really loved, you know, in and that, that was attracting me to theater and things like that. I just kind of like to think that I incorporate those ideas into my playing now and, and think about things in a very vocal way. So I kind of combined the two, if you will. <laughs> I'd love to talk about that more um, in a little bit, but absolutely, could we hear about what that path looked like and what that experience was for you. Could you talk us through your education and mm -hmm. training? Absolutely. So being a Florida native, um, uh, Florida State was a great option for me. It's an, a wonderful music school. Um, and it was, uh, it was just kind of the perfect setup for me from being a, an in-state student and for cost and all that stuff. But ultimately it just also turned out to be a, just a, the, exactly the musical experience I needed where I was in that, in my life. You know, I didn't play in youth orchestras. I didn't have, like I say, my first live orchestra concert was in 10th grade that I saw. So I didn't have a real contact to that world yet. So that school was kind of perfect. I think if I had fallen into, you know, like a intense, um, conservatory type setting at that point. I don't know if I would have lasted. Um, but so Florida State was perfect for me for my mass uh, undergrad. I studied with John Hunt for three years before he moved to Eastman. And then uh, my senior year, I studied with Jeff Kiesecker, who is still there at Florida State. Um, wonderful teacher as well. And then um, I really only looked at two grad schools and they were both in Ohio. Part of that was my mom was living in, my mom and my sister were living in Ohio at the time. Um, so I knew that there were people in that area, family that I, I would have close by. Um, but I auditioned for Cincinnati and uh, the CIM, Cleveland Institute. Um, I got into both places, but ultimately decided to go to CIM where I studied with um, David McGill for two years. He was then in Cleveland with the orchestra before he went to Chicago to play with the Chicago Symphony. And as you know now, he's uh, main, only teaching at Northwestern. But, um, you know, that's how I kind of ended up through my master's program. And when I got to Cleveland, I was very lucky that they're one of the best freelance orchestras in the area was having an audition for one of their section positions. So I auditioned for second bassoon and won it. But that day they also told me that the principal had just told them that same day that she was had accepted a job somewhere else. So they were gonna have a principal audition in a couple of weeks and asked if I would come back for that. So I said, yes, and I won that. So I was very lucky that I had work right away when I moved for my master's. And that just was a perfect segue after graduating, not having any other options at the moment. Um, my parents had moved around a lot. Um, I didn't have, you know, home to go to necessarily. So I stayed in Cleveland and freelanced and I built, built a really nice life there. Um, and then the Milwaukee audition came up 
I mean, obviously I had taken other auditions too, um, but uh, the uh, Milwaukee one came up and I won that one. And that's what brought me from Cleveland to Milwaukee, where I was for 11 years before coming to Dallas. I'd love to hear about your experiences auditioning. Um, we often hear about people's successes, uh, but I would love to, if, if you're willing to share some of your uh, journey through auditioning and how you grew into being an excellent auditioner. <laughs> that's always a <laughs> that's, I love that. I, I wouldn't I would never consider myself an excellent auditioner. I'm I, I don't I'm not sure I know really what that means to me, but um I think there's so much luck involved um in in the audition experience. Of course, you have to be prepared. I, what I always say to people is you have to prepare a hundred percent and that's 70% of the audition experience. The other 30% is the stuff that you cannot control, like where you are in the day, um, who you play before, who you play after, who's on the committee, did they have enough to eat? Are they fighting with each other? Are they fighting with their, you know, all these things, the temperature, the sound, all these things. And so many auditions I took, I allowed that stuff to get in the way. And I remember coming back to, to McGill after auditions and being very frustrated. Oh, I didn't advance or this happened and yada, yada. And he's like, well, you just have to think about the music. And I would get so angry. Like, what do you think I'm thinking about? <laughs> but I started to realize, you know, I really wasn't focusing enough. I was letting all that other stuff get in the way. And as soon as I started, started to really just kind of step back and say, you know what, this is me. This is what you're going to get. This is how I play the instrument. Either it's going to work or it isn't. You're going to like it or you're not. I'm, you know, either I get the job or I don't. And to be honest, we lose more auditions than we win. It's just there aren't enough jobs out there for everyone to win all of them. So um, once I, I kind of put all those things into perspective, I started to have much more success of, of being able to go in and put all that stuff aside and just enjoy the moment and play the bassoon and say, you know, I hope you like this. And if you do, I'm so happy. And if you don't, someone, someone else will, another orchestra will. And every time you don't win an audition, it's important to remember that you didn't win it because you're not going to fit in there. Probably it's probably not the best place for you. Um, and that place will come to you eventually. And you just kind of have to accept that and, make the best of what you're in and keep practicing and, and moving towards the next audition. And when that right time comes along, it comes along. Um, and I feel, you know, like I say, I don't, there, not a day goes by in my career that I'm not grateful and feel lucky that I'm where I am. And I felt that in every step of my, you know, throughout my career, very grateful that I have had and have what I did and have. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about post-audition, what you have learned in the process of doing this job and your concept of what makes a great principal bassoonist in the mm -hmm. context of an orchestra? You know, it's interesting. I I feel like, you know, the, the bassoon, particularly second bassoon, um, is so integral in, in a wind section but also in a way that's not as prominent, let's say, as the oboe, for instance, or the flute, or even the, you know, the clarinet, the instruments that get all the big real solo passages. We get our moments, of course. Um, it's all Russian. Go figure. Um, <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we, we, of course, we get our great moments. We get our few concerto opportunities and things like that. But I think what makes a great principal bassoonist is is someone who is absolutely aware of when they need to come out and when they need to come back into the context it's coming out and sticking you know coming out and go big going back in that kind of thing um knowing when you're really there to be a supportive color um versus a solo a solo voice even when it might say solo in the part knowing that you're actually just a color sometimes and not really what is required to be heard. Um, and so so I kind of I kind of gravitate towards that. And also 
we have to just be good listeners. And that's true of any instrument. You have to listen around you. You have to listen to, especially if you're playing something that somebody else just played, being able to respond and mimic and whatever, be able to, to, to do those things on the fly in the moment. Um, but, you know, those are the things that I kind of always focus on is when am I a bassoon? When am I a horn? When am I, you know, another, when am I coloring the cello? Those kinds of things. Those are the things I think about on a daily basis. Because you're so experienced in orchestral playing and auditioning, and mm -hmm. I'm sure being on committees and uh, we're in, obviously we're in the Corona coronavirus time we're, we're just in 2020 that's just <laughs> 2020 that's where has, we are 2020 it. is what it is yeah it's so true yeah what do you think are going to be important skills when we come out of the pandemic and what do you predict will be qualities that will help people succeed in 2020 and beyond? And do you think it's changing or do you think it's going to be the same? You know, after 9-11, everything changed, right? I, there was some consistency. There were some things that carried over, but there were things that we had to learn and adapt to. I think the same thing is going to hold true here. Um, yes, there will be some similarities. The arts, the performing arts, I don't think they're going to die. They, you know, it's just a part of humanity. If anything, to me, art music, fine art, you know, painting, whatever kind of art it is, it actually is what makes us human. It's what separates us from creatures that can't do that kind of thing, that don't have that kind of emotional depth or thought to be able to express themselves that way. So I think because of that, it's always gonna be here. Now, in, in response to your question, are we gonna have to adapt? Yes, and I think, We've already seen that in so many ways. I mean, look what we're doing right now. We're on a Zoom meeting, having a, you know, doing a podcast interview. This is not necessarily the kind of thing that we would, I would have thought about. I would never have thought about having master classes online or um, all of these social distancing things that are in place for us. And is it challenging? Absolutely. But the creativity that is being shown across the spectrum of, of, our business, be it players or managements, um, is pretty astounding to me and gives me great hope. And I would say that being becoming more familiar with these kinds of things, these technological advances, um, these social media outlets, these are the kinds of things that are gonna help keep us relevant and put us out there. So I think being able to be comfortable with technology and knowing what your particular skills are and how those can be put out into the world, I think are going to be what helps keep us moving forward as a as an art form. But there's still going to be live concerts. Um, for the time being, they look different. You know, here in Dallas, we're one of the few orchestras that are playing weekly concerts right now. We're in week eight of our season. We've done seven, six classicals and three pops or something. I can't even remember. We've done a lot of classical concerts, a couple of pops concerts. Um, we're all distance on stage. We've got video production that's putting things online, audio production for online stuff as well. We're going to be doing things similar to the Berlin Digital Concert Hall, where we're going to we're selling season tickets to watch them online so that we can still stay relevant in a world where we can't have 2,000 people in the hall. Right now, I think we're somewhere in the 100, 125 range, maybe, um, in the hall that holds 2200. So obviously they're well separated too. But these are the things that that organizations are finding they're having to do. And we're making it work. And I'm so proud of that. I'm proud of the Dallas Symphony for what we've been able to accomplish um, in such a short period of time. And I know that other orchestras are kind of climbing onto that and, you know, learning through that and finding ways to do it in their situations as well. So I, I feel very positive in spite of the, the fear that exists right now in the world. And obviously it's not, you know, we can't deny that it's, it's not just the virus. There's all these other forces at play that, that make the world scary right now. But we have to remember that art is what it soothes, heals the soul. It, it, it keeps us grounded and keeps us um, 
happy and fulfilled. And that's that's our goal as performers and well, management people too, to be able to bring this to the to the people that need to hear it. Kind of piggybacking off of that, um, Galit referenced earlier um, serving on committees. And I know for many of us, we uh, share your opinion that, you know, the arts are going to continue and that we're going to adapt. And this is a fundamental part of society and humanity. But for those students who see that path as um, leading to the symphony orchestra, we can anticipate that those stakes may be especially high once auditioning begins and we start to see ourselves make our way out of this kind of precarious situation. Uh, So I'd be interested in knowing kind of what perspective you've gained on the other side of the screen and what advice you would give for those who are still on that path. Sure. Um, It's very interesting being on the other side of the screen. Um, And so educational <laughs> um, for for anyone who's done it. Um, so to me, and and I would say this is something that kind of came out of my own self evaluation and in my own understanding of how I audition and what I want to do when I audition. Um, and my, I guess the the main thing I would say to people is just do your best um, to to stand out, you have to stand out, you know, playing things in a way that, you know, like for instance, I I do a couple little different things in the Mozart Bassoon Concerto um, that I think stand out from other interpretations and maybe it's good or bad, but at least I know that there's uh, an attention being given because of that. Um, And if you are the one person that plays the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique rhythm correctly, you're going to stand out. (laughs) If you're the one person who blah, 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 whatever it is in that given moment, that particular excerpt, um, always go to be, your job is to make the committee be drawn to you. Um, And I will say absolutely, um, if you're, the concerto is so, so important for the committee. Um, Because if your concerto is amazing and you have blips and baubles, personally for me as a listener, in the excerpts later on, I am so much more willing to go along with you on that journey and say, oh, well, that's a, you know, whatever, that just happened, it happens. But if if the concerto isn't refined and well honed and, beautifully presented, um, you're going to have a hard time selling the committee to stay with you through the rest of that journey. Um, So I can't express enough how important the work you put into your concerto um, practice is. Um, So that's my, my main point that I would say. And then the rest of it, you know, is goes back to what I said before, don't listen to the people around you. Don't pay attention in the warm up room. Don't if you're in one of those situations where you're waiting off stage while someone's on stage finishing their audition, don't listen to it as much as you can. Everything sounds better through the door, blah, blah, blah. All these things that you can, you can hear and say. Um, but I think that as long as you're focused on you and like David McGill says, focused on the music, um, you're, you'll have a greater success rate. And to be honest, you'll just have a better experience. And to me, that's what it is. I auditioned for principal in Chicago before the Dallas audition. Um, I did not advance, but I was asked to come and play again. Both times I played, I was perfectly happy and content with how I played. Um, the fact that I didn't advance didn't make me upset. Um, and that's the goal you want to reach, is that even if you don't get the job, that you can walk away and say, I'm so proud of how I played. And yes, maybe that could have gone better, that that could have gone better. But overall, the presentation, I'm happy with. And that's kind of the ultimate goal you want to reach, so that every time you don't win an audition, you're not going home and beating yourself up or reinventing the wheel or saying I need a new instrument or I have to change my read style. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just do you and it will it will come. 
I want to return to um, your love of voice and vocal mm -hmm. music. Uh, you referenced that earlier in the interview. You cite Maria Callas as one of your musical influences, and mm -hmm. you've recorded an album of opera aria transcriptions. Um, I'd love to hear some of how um, vocal music influences your um, artistic viewpoint, and then also how that is manifest in your pedagogy and how you teach students to be ever more vocal. Yeah, good. I love those questions. You know, for me, when I was when I was young, um, when we lived in New York, I would always fly down in the summers to my grandmother's house in Florida. Um, and I would spend the summer there. And she always listened to the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts on the weekends. And I thought it was absolute torture. <laughs> I was like, how can you do this to yourself? Sitting there listening to this screaming. That was not vocal music to me. But when I got into college, I saw my first live opera and it happened to be Marriage of Figaro. And again, I was just completely blown away by the experience. And as, as quickly as I could after that, I just started meeting and getting, trying to get surrounded by singers and just get involved in that whole aura, that gestalt of whatever, you know? And I started listening to more singing. I started going to the operas at school. And then of course I started playing in the pit for operas at school. That also brought me closer to the art form of vocal performance. Um, and then when I got to, to CIM, uh, David McGill introduced me to Maria Callas and um, it, it really kind of changed my whole perspective on how to play. And I guess the, the easiest way to sort of define that, because <laughs> it's kind of vague in a way, right? Vocal concepts. It's about sustaining. It's about the sostenuto in a line. It's about knowing that a long note in vocal music is always going to be a vowel sound and a short note is always going to be a consonant and connecting your vowels and consonants. And so trying to avoid, you know, swells within a long note, what we tend to call as, you know, a bulge, um, which is always a sign of bad singing, not good singing. Bad singers, you know, don't, they do that. Good singers don't bulge like that. It's always um, a long defined line. Um, so when I'm working with students on that, certainly I'll, I'll use the anthology of the arias that I recorded um, because they're right there easily accessible um, and work with a student to learn how in this little moment uh, to, to put those concepts into play. And you do that by working on those ideas, the sostenuto, things like that, but also just listening to singers. That's really all you have to do is listen to singers and listen to the good ones, listen to the bad ones, listen to how they get to the end of a line or how they start a note. Um, and then just try and figure out how that works into your given instrument, how to achieve that on the bassoon or the tuba or the piccolo, whatever it is. Anyone can do this. We can all play with a vocal quality. The other thing is if you're if you have the time or the financial ability, take some voice lessons. You don't have to take a lot, take a couple and just learn about your own. We all have an instrument that's built inside of us. Um, and we can take that instrument and incorporate it into this bundle of sticks that we have chosen to to put in front of us and and we can transfer that through the instrument and so getting those kind of vocal experiences um, can help I happen to have ultimately sang in a choir eventually in my youth um, and I learned a lot about it through just that experience but I find I get so much more enjoyment out of playing when I think that way than I when I step out of this instrumental technical, this fingering, that fingering, the read, bleh, there's so many things to worry about. And if I can just kind of say, all right, well, I have all those things in order. Let's look at this now and focus on that ability. And it just, it's so much more enjoyable as a performer and hopefully for the listener as well. My teacher, Matthew Ruggiero used to say, Jackie, no one wants to hear the bassoon. They want to hear me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly true. Exactly what? true. I love that. <laughs> it's true. Another thing I want to ask you about, um, I'm a Yakima person, 
and mm-hmm. I collaborate a lot with Native American composers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very aware of your collaboration with the Chickasaw composer, Jared. Oh, great. Jared's yeah. a friend of mine, know him very well. Um, so I would love to hear the story of the conception, process, preparation, everything behind the concerto, The Ghost of White Deer. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I'm, he and I are both so proud of this project, and it it was a long time coming. And to be honest, the CD was a long time coming, too. Um, obviously, different project, different people. But so I'm so, so proud of both of them. But Jared and I went to uh, the Cleveland Institute of Music together, <clears throat> and we knew each other, but we weren't in the same social circles, necessarily. Um, but we had, we, we were, we, we knew each other, basically. And then... Many years later, we got reconnected through the Santa Fe uh, Chamber Music Festival. Um, for nine of the years that I was in Milwaukee, I was very fortunate to also be principal bassoon in the Santa Fe Opera, which also ties into all that vocal music stuff. Um, but while I was there, I also got many opportunities to play at the Chamber Music Festival. And Jared um, got asked to bring a piece to the festival. So I was very fortunate to be a part of the world premiere of his uh, Wind Quintet which is a fascinating piece written for flute, Native American flute, bass clarinet, bassoon, and clarinet. So it's not a typical wind quintet. Um, and Carlos Nakai was the, the Native American flutist, world famous. And he played, I don't know, seven different flutes, and the flutist played piccolo flute, alto, all kinds of just really interesting pieces. And I was just fascinated by the work. And he gave us each a recording of uh, some concertos that he had written um for flute uh and i was just really taken by those works as well and thought i really like how he writes for the bassoon in this piece i really like how he writes concerto i wonder if we can combine those things so we started talking about it and it was something we were trying to get done in milwaukee and it just we could never get it off the ground and um when i came down here it just became actually all the more um uh, all the more relevant because of the fact that the Chickasaw Nation, the, the boundary line is just north of us. And he lives just north of us, Jared. And so it became, this has to be d- done. <laughs> Instead of let's talk about it. Now it was, we really have to do this. And um, he picked the topic. He picked the the subject matter of that particular story. Um, and because he felt based on his knowledge of my playing and his knowledge of the Dallas Symphony, that that story would work really well. Um, and ultimately the piece I think is so successful and um, evocative and just got such great feedback from audience members and reviewers, you know, were a little concerned about balances from time to time, but Jared was very specific about those were, those moments were his intent. Um, so, but uh, in, in general, uh, it was just the audience loved it, and it it was so gratifying to finally have this. I I'm, I'm has to have been a ten year project, finally completed, and to such a you know acclaim. And he was just thrilled, um, and it, it was just a great project. And I'm so glad that it's out there, and I hope people look at it and work on it and 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 think about performing it it's it's a really wonderful piece uh, to be added to our scant concerto repertoire <laughs> and you know to have something new too is great you have lived in many different places you've gone from florida to cleveland to milwaukee to dallas mm-hmm. and i'd love to ask you about your read making routine and how you <laughs> make successful reads uh, with the versatility that you have accomplished. You know, reads are not my jam. <laughs> I really struggled in college. I won't lie. I, I really struggled and I was never, I never felt like a good read maker. Um, and I had a few really embarrassing moments that I should have learned from that I didn't really until later, like finding myself at a concert without a read that played and having to ask a friend to borrow a read and, you know, just things that you never want to, positions you never want to find yourself in. And, um, but there I was. And then when I got to Cleveland, um, 
I, it's funny, we never talked about reads, David and I, and I asked him about that kind of after the fact. I mean, we talked about them, but it wasn't like we sat down and did read work and got real in depth with it. And I, I asked him after the fact a couple of years later, and he's like, oh, well, I never sounded like you really had read problems. And I was like, well, I guess I had you fooled. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting. My my read style is kind of a Frankenstein read style. It's a it's a bit of of um, McGill. It's a bit of Jeff Kiesecker. It's a bit of John Hunt. It's kind of all of it. Um, and uh, that particular blend works well for me. Um, and I try and and teach that style to to my students and knowing of course that not every read style works for every student and that adjustments need to be made as you go along but i have found great um success and and comfort in this read style um but i will also say in all honesty that i do not <laughs> currently make my own reads um i have a former student who makes them so beautifully and I buy them from him. <laughs> I think that's um, awesome. And, you know, it's, to be totally honest, it, it just allows me to enjoy the instrument more. Um, reed making is not something that I, all, I ever enjoyed. And I know that there are people out there that totally get into it and, and love it and can just make reads, make reads, make reads. Um, I just was never that person. And, and I just had to eventually accept that fact and and know that it's okay for me to not make reads all the time. And I now have more time to enjoy the instrument, to practice, to um, whatever it is. Um, I don't have to take all that time. Now that's not to say that I don't, I still have a bunch of blanks here in my studio that I just made. Um, and I think what I'm gonna start doing is making blanks and sending them to him and then he can finish them. Um, because that makes me feel a little less guilty <laughs> about the fact that I'm having a, a friend make reads for me. I I do pay him. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking reads for free. Um, so let's make that perfectly clear to everyone. Um, but I, I just found that that was much more, I get much more enjoyment out of the instrument not making reads. And I also started, you know, when I started with McGill, that was the first time I realized that you could actually buy gouge shaped and profile cane. And I was like, oh, okay, well this makes reed making way better. Um, so I had already gone that route, the gouge shaped and profiled. Um, but you know, now that I'm back teaching, I had five, four, four years away from teaching when I first moved here. Um, now that I'm back to teaching though, I, I am of course making more reads because you have to as far as, um, you know, being able to teach students read making, though, honestly, at this point with the COVID business, it makes it hard to teach reads because um, you can't play on them. You can't sit that close. You can't really do it online. So thank God all of my students are doing really well on their own with reads <laughs> for the moment. But um, I am, of course, getting stuff set up to be able to start digging into my read style with my students. And that's actually a good thing for me too to get kind of back into that context of the hands-on because it's been different without having to be connected to read making all the time. It's a skill that you have to, you know, refresh, <laughs> just like double tonguing or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you always have to be on top of it. So this is good for me to be back on top of it that way. I, I really love that. Oh, go ahead, Jackie. No, I was just going to say, I always love when professionals come on and talk about the boundaries that they put in place for in the name of self-care and not just grinding for the sake of grinding. I think we all know that as students, there's a certain kind of routine and things we have to do. But when like Albie Miklish came on and said he takes summers off every summer and Monica Ellis purchases her reads and uh, Kristen Wolf Jensen uh, mentioned how she purchases blanks and finishes blanks. And so right. telling fellow professionals and, and young musicians that um, as you advance, you're able to shift and make room for the things in life that you want to and, and have balance and adjust in the ways that you think you need to, I think is something that actually we, I'd love for everyone to talk about more. I think it's really right. <laughs> here, you know, 
It seems more prevalent in the bassoon community than it is in the oboe community, or at least the oboe community is not talking about it. <laughs> yeah, we're more normal. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, I'm no, not going to argue. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, honestly, I think most of that is just the fact that you can make, I mean, correct me if I'm being completely off base or wrong, but you can make a read, an oboe read in 30 minutes. Yeah. It does, you cannot cannot make a bassoon read in 30 minutes. It's impossible. It's just, there's so much cane. It needs to, they, I, honestly, I think they need to sit a lot. I let my reads blank sit six months before I do anything to them. Um, and it just, you know, you scrape for an hour or 30 minutes and you got to let it be like sitting and relaxing because it's freaked out. And so it's, <laughs> it's just such a longer process. I mean, if I could make a read in 30 minutes, I think I would make them more regularly because it's a faster process. Now, on the flip side, my reads last forever, whereas, as as oboists know, your reads don't last that long. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to Cleveland Orchestra concerts when I was at CIM and watching John Mack make a read for the second half, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> my stress level just was like, but that's what worked for him. And so, you know, back to Jackie's point, that's exactly right. It's it's what works for you and the boundaries that you need to set. You know, for me, I, I can't do that. I can't scrape a read right before a concert. It's going to be completely different and it's going to make me and everyone around me uncomfortable. So I, I just can't do that. Um, but it works for others. But yeah, that's the reads. Read making is a thing, huh? <laughs> well, I also love the acknowledgement that you don't have to be perfect at everything that you know, because I'm not a great read maker. I've, it's never been like my main skill. And I've gotten to the point where now I know how to do it for myself. Right. But, you know, it's never been like, you know what I'm really great at? Making mm -hmm. reads. And and it to, to hear people say, like, that is a part of my life that I am willing to uh, shift over to somebody else. Like that is just some zone of genius. Like <laughs> I know what I want to do. I know what I'm, I really want to invest my time in and you only have one life. It almost, it makes the, the prospect of being a professional musician so much more appealing to me when you right. can make those choices. Right. And, and, and that's absolutely true. And and I think it's funny you, you, what you're saying, like, you know, this, you're, you feel the same about read making and you feel like you can do them now for, for what suits you. And that's, that's all we can do, right, is make yeah. what, what suits us in the moment. You know, it, I remember a story that David McGill told me in school about read making. And actually, maybe it was in the conversation that I'm just, you know, referred to a few minutes ago where I, I asked him after the fact about read making. Um, but he said something to me, a, a story about uh, Marcel Tabuteau at, at Curtis. Um, a student came in with a beautiful read. She was so excited about it. And it could play all the low Bs for Barber, um, First Symphony, or it could do everything she wanted. And um, she was so happy to show him, you know, how, how it was. And so she played and and he was like, wow, that sounds really good. And he said, can I see the, see your read? And she said, of course, she handed it over gleefully and he took the read and he crushed it into the stand. <laughs> and he said, um, you know, that's really great, but you have to learn how to play beautifully on terrible reads. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I realized when he mentioned that to me that I think that's what I, <laughs> that's what I do. I just have figured out that, you know, not every read is great, but you have to play something, right? Um, so I know that personally, I'm very flexible as throughout a read's life, as it changes, I adjust with it and, and can make myself play on it longer than maybe I should, but I, I have that ability. I've, and I think that's just because of the fact that I was never a good read maker. And I somehow managed, as David said, to make it not sound like an issue. But I, I have never, I've often felt very uncomfortable with my reads, just like, I don't know how this is gonna work. And then it always seems to work. And I'm like, okay, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but I accept. That's like the most we can hope for is it doesn't sound like it's an issue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. So true. 
Could you tell us about a special memory or a particularly rewarding moment as you look back over your career? Wow, there have been a lot. I mean, I feel very fortunate. I've worked with a lot of amazing conductors, amazing soloists. Um, I've played a lot of amazing repertoire. Um, so I, I have a lot of those. I guess some particular memories that stick out were um, getting to play um, with Simon Rattle at a very young age. I mean, he wasn't even really who he is now then. Um, that was very meaningful to me, um, getting to work uh, with George Schulte um, was very exciting as well. I mean, obviously I'm talking about conductors at the moment, um, but I also have great memories of playing, you know, playing pieces like, for instance, Mahler 9 comes to mind. Um, 30 seconds in or 45 seconds in, there's this major climax. And every time I play it, I'm just like, I burst into tears. <laughs> I'm like literally on stage crying. It's so amazing to me, the music. And those moments I, I love, those, those moments of chills and intense connection in the moment to the visceralness of whatever the piece is. I've had a lot of experiences like that playing opera. Um, where I'm just kind of transported to somewhere else and, and totally along for the ride and loving every minute of it. Um, and, and also things like, you know, playing with John Williams. I mean, that seems silly, but you know, I, I grew up, I'm in that, that eighties generation of all those amazing John Williams film scores. I mean, they're all amazing. Well, not every Beethoven piece is amazing. Um, not every John Williams piece is amazing, but a lot of them are. <laughs> um, but I, I remember like the first time I played um, John Williams music thinking, I, I remember watching these movies and thinking never in a million years would I have thought uh, I would have been playing this music. Um, and it's interesting because that music in a way is almost more accessible to the world than classical music, right? more people see John Williams scored movies than they go to an orchestra concert. Um, so it was like, I suddenly felt like I was a part of something that was pretty spectacular. And it's like, here I am playing E.T. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it was such an important part of my youth. And here I am playing that music. And then, you know, I had an opportunity to play some of it with him conducting was even more kind of outstanding. But those kinds of things stick out to me. I don't know why those three, four came to mind, but if you ask me tomorrow, I might tell you four different ones. <laughs> That's the beauty of, of what we do though, is you know, there'll there'll be things that come along that will trump those if, and and make those that moment is even more special. But there's they're still there, you know. Would you be willing to regale us with an embarrassing memory of something oh, that totally. happened on oh, stage? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is so important. Um, yes, I, and, and I will give you the, the, the go-to one I always go to. Um, that's a redundancy, but whatever. Um, so uh, it was in the walkie. I was playing the Mozart Bassoon Concerto um, and I did it from memory and it, well, I was playing my own cadenza that I had written and I was having such a great time. Everything's going really well. Right in the middle of my cadenza, I completely forget my music. <laughs> I didn't forget Mozart's music. I forgot what I wrote. Um, and I, I, I'm going along and I get to the spot and at the spot and it all goes wrong. And I basically, I take a breath and I go back and I try to start it again. And the same thing happens. Um, and I just, I literally, <laughs> I literally pull the bassoon out of my mouth and I, sh my shoulders fall and I go, oh, it like audibly. <laughs> and I just, I, I go back half a page and I start and I get through it that time. Um, 
Now, the good thing is, is uh, I was wondering if in the review that was going to show up. Um, it did not. It never. And actually, I asked the, one of the reviewers afterwards, I said, did you notice that that? And they said no. Um, and I was like, oh, really good. Now, however, the concertmaster <laughs> and principal cellist were both like, oh, my God. <laughs> they could not believe that I did that. Um, they gave me such grief for it, but in a really fun way. I mean, I was... I think I was instantly this ball of sweat. I was so stressed out in the moment. And, you know, ultimately I can look back on it now and, and laugh, but in the moment it was terrifying. And, and I went home that night and rewrote that passage um, so that I didn't have to think about it again. And I also will never play from memory again. <laughs> that was my biggest lesson from that, that, you know, bassoonists, instrumentalists in orchestra outside of the strings, uh, we're not taught to memorize. We don't, we don't memorize from an early age like string players do, or it, unless you go through, you know, um, you know, like a Suzuki school where you're used to using your ear that way and memorizing comes faster. Um, I, that's not the same for us. We are much more connected to the page. Um, and I just had to accept that, that, that that's not something I need to do. I don't need to memorize. Um, I think it, it it ultimately just puts me in a much more comfortable place, but I, I it was it was a really uncomfortable and embarrassing moment, just like stopping and being like oh, <laughs> 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 um, but you know there have been you know many moments like that in in anyone's performing life. You're going to have embarrassing moments. I've had auditions. Uh, uh, here's another one, just for the sake of fun. You didn't ask for a second one, but you're going to get one. We'll take I, it. <laughs> here I am auditioning for St. Louis, and um, I'm playing this, the, the round. And last thing on the round is um, Ravel Piano Concerto, the high solo. And I never have an, an, an issue with that. But over the course of the round, I'm realizing that my read is changing extensively. <laughs> it's changing. <laughs> and... First of all, it's a it's an audition in the middle of February in St. Louis, right? So it's cold. Um, now I'm coming from Milwaukee, so that shouldn't be too different, right? But the way they um, uh, the way they uh, heat their hall or or temperature control their hall, it was really kind of swampy in there. It wasn't just warm; it was also really wet. So my read was just like, yeah, it didn't take, but you know four lines of something for the read to just feel completely useless. So I get to the end of the round and I have to, you know, play Ravel Piano Concerto. So I'm going, da-dum, da-dum, da-da-dum. And that's what happens. I do it again. Four times in a row, that happens. And the, the, the person behind the committee is like, it's okay, take a moment. And I'm just like, how soon is this gonna end? <laughs> I just want to be done. So finally, the fifth time, I forced the E out. It must have sounded like a cat being murdered. Um, but it came out. And on the way out, off a stage, I just said to the to the proctor as we got off stage, I said, just so you know, in case they're wondering, <laughs> it's just my read just totally died. I don't know what to tell you. I can play this. I don't know that I only said that to them to make myself feel better. It didn't do any good. It didn't make a difference. But, you know, those things happen and you deal with it. So I went home with my tail between my legs and I still had a job and I was happy where I was. It wasn't like I needed to get away or anything, but it was just an, another unfortunate experience. <laughs> I have had that experience where it's it's warm and, and damp yeah. in the hall. And you, you just, there's nothing you could do. <laughs> no, I literally felt like I had wandered into one of those, like, jungle pavilions at the zoo or something mm -hmm. where you're like, you're outside <laughs> and it's one temperature and you walk in the building and you're like, ew. <laughs> like you have to take off layers. This was unpleasant. <laughs> so, but you know what? That guy who won the job is a beautiful musician and he, you know, deserves to be there. So I'm so happy. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are some of us for whom the high E not coming out is the norm as opposed to the 
you know, exception. So right, I guess there's that. That's true. That's true. But you know what? That that really was a bugaboo for me. I had serious like PTSD from that. And like the next time the piece showed up to play, I was petrified that it wasn't going to come out. Um, and of course, I overcame that hurdle, and now it's I don't ever think about it again. But you know, those things stick. They stick um, for a long time. <laughs> the million times that you played it beautifully and had right. no problems, but the four matter. times it, it didn't was, happen yeah. in a row when it counted <laughs> in the jungle pavilion. Right. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? So this question gets asked a lot. It's such a great question. And uh, as you know, it, you probably get a completely different answer every time. Um, I, I always just tell people, if you cannot envision your life without music, then you have to give it everything you can. You know, you have to dedicate yourself as all in and do everything you can um, to, to be the best at what uh, the best that you can be not the best ever but the best that you can be as an individual um and and that may manifest itself in in a number of ways you know you may find out as much as you want to be in an orchestra that maybe that's not what you ultimately is the right path for you and hopefully with proper you know tutelage from whoever you're studying with or or guidance from you know, faculty and staff at whatever institution you're at, um, that right path will be found for you. You know, there are, are lots of things that we can do as musicians, as bassoonists, as oboists, as, as whatever we're dealing with. And, you know, there's, there's teaching, there's um, performing in community groups, there's, um, there's freelancing. You know, I had a 12 year freelance career that I was perfectly happy with. And if I had continued doing that, I probably would have continued being happy. So there are lots of options for us. And I think that's what's really important. You know, focus on what you want to do, but don't don't be downtrodden if you realize that maybe you need to switch it and uh, and focus in a different way. But whatever it is, love it and love it completely and and give it as much as you can. And hopefully the world will return it to you in kind, you know, regardless of, of anything else, as long as you're loving what you're doing, then that's going to be all that really matters. You know, as long as you're happy and content, I guess is what I would say. Just give it as much as you can. Ted, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was such a fun conversation and we cannot oh, thank, thank you. you enough. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. It was great talking to both of you as well. We know you loved this joyful interview with Ted Saluri. Please follow us on all the social medias. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please rate and review on iTunes. And you can find us on all of the platforms where podcasts exist. Jackie, who do we have coming up next? Next episode will feature an interview with Elena Dirks, Principal Oboe of the St. Louis 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 Symphony <laughs> Orchestra. <laughs> Billy, it's time to end this nerd parade. Jackie, go make reads.